Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In this segment, join me for a conversation with fellow financial broadcaster Al Corlin of the Corlin Economic Report and economist Paul Milogenovic of RavingCapitalist.com. Mr. Corlin has been involved in the financial community since 1967 when he received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Washington with a dual major in economics and Russian literature. He went on to receive his Master's in Business Administration degree with an emphasis on finance and international trade from the University of Puget Sound in 1978. His website is kereport.com. Paul Mlajenovic is a certified financial planner, writer, speaker, and author of Stock Investing for Dummies, as well as other books. His website is ravingcapitalist.com. He hosts business and financial seminars as well as tutorials that you can find linked on the website. We finished up last week with gold down $27 on Friday. Job numbers are not good. Nothing is really being exploited right now. The dollar is up while everything else is down. Now, we have countries that are not necessarily free societies, such as Russia and China, that are doing very, very well with natural resources. They have money. What is our hope, Paul? Al? You know, that's a really interesting point. You know, you were talking about, you know, the economic numbers that came out Friday, July 7th. The numbers were not very good. I don't personally think they're going to get much better. As the years progress, I don't think they're going to be getting much better. I think that it's going to be a while before things are all rosy and mudville again, so to speak. The one thing that we're losing, aside from money, other economic scenarios, though, that makes me very sad, and I'd like you, if you would, Paul, to please comment on this, is we're losing a lot of freedom in the United States, my friend. Well, this is definitely true, and I think for many people, America would probably respond very vigorously if they saw their freedom being blown down in one massive instant assault. But really, freedom in America is dying through a thousand cuts, little by little, chipping away. I know with Ellis, we spoke uh, last time about uh, Obamacare and how there's an immense erosion of uh, liberty there. Liberty is above and beyond, really, uh, something that sounds like a social good. You know, it is actually an economic good. When you shrink freedom, you also shrink the economy. And I think when people see that happening, they will understand to a greater extent why the economy is bad and why it will get 
probably worse before it gets better. Uh, we have to understand about the impact. Freedom, a free market, that builds prosperity. It builds society. But whenever you have statism on a federal, state, and local level as we have, that puts such burdens on the private economy and puts a great deal of confusion and uncertainty in the minds of decision makers in terms of you know the financial markets and the private businesses. This causes a lot of consternation. So again, liberty is shrinking and it does have a direct and very tangible effect on the economy as well. You know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the old Janis Joplin song, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. We've kind of gotten to that situation, don't you think, Ellis? Absolutely, especially when we're being told what we can and cannot do with our money, and when confiscation is taking place with regard to Obamacare and a host of other new taxes, in my opinion. My question is this, and I'll divert it back to either one of you gentlemen. Isn't statism the antithesis of freedom? Isn't the state saying, we know better than you? Exactly. And, you know, I'm going to defer to Paul on this one only because I have been playing that song now for quite some time on our show. But, Paul, you had experience, as my parents did, you know, in a in a totalitarian society in Yugoslavia. Comment on that for us, would you? Well, this is an interesting thing because people think of communism as something that, like, is in a far-flung time, etc., and they really associate communism with rhetoric. You know, you hear about the proletariat and stuff like that. But basically, communism in the functional sense really means that government, statism, runs all aspects of an economy. And this is where it's a problematic thing, because people forget that various forms of statism, ranging from communism and fascism down to socialism and down to lesser versions of it, these are all degrees of coercion, confiscation, and control. For example, as you know, and some of your audience knows as well, I teach a lot about investing. And people right. know I wrote books like Precious Metals, Investing for Dummies, among other things. When I introduce myself, I jokingly refer myself as a raving capitalist. And I go, the reason why I'm a raving capitalist is because I was born in a communist country. That's how you become a raving capitalist. People think, well, well isn't that unpopular to be a capitalist? Well, I can explain capitalism in three words. Voluntary, peaceful, exchange. That's the right. essence of real capitalism. In other words, I go to a store, I say to that person, I'll give you money if you give me a good or a service, and they agree or disagree, right? If we don't agree, then I move on. It's a private market between buyers and sellers. But once you get into the realm where government is more and more involved, then you're leaving the point of voluntary exchange, and you get to a point where you have transactions which are coercion, control, and or confiscation. And this is something that people need to understand. Whenever they talk about government expanding, to a great extent, what they forget is how this warps the age-old equation of supply and demand. A lot of people should be looking at this through supply and demand because then it becomes crystal clear why statism, when it becomes rampant, it's not a venue that will last. It will lead to chaos and collapse. Look at Europe. You're going to see it in parts of America as well, ranging from California to even Illinois, because government warps the supply and demand factor. Government is an engine of consumption. People forget that. Uh, this is why can't the government create jobs? It could create public jobs. Public jobs then become part of the burden that private jobs have to carry. Government doesn't have the ability to create private jobs. It only has the ability to create public jobs. But when you create public jobs, that's more of a burden on the private economy, and you can't keep it up. It's like putting more luggage on a donkey. The donkey sooner or later is going to collapse. You have an imbalance. Too much consumption 
which manifests itself in too much spending and too much debt. Look, if you don't have production and you don't have the people who are able to carry and or pull it, then you're going to run into massive problems. In today's world, global market, you're seeing a lot of that. And I think this is where a lot of these economists that are out there go wrong. They are forgetting to look at policies, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's the government of Greece or Europe. You have to take a look at this through the balances of supply and demand. And what that means is supply means production. Demand means consumption. If you have tremendous amounts of consumption, but shrinking amount of production, then you have an imbalance and that leads to a collapse. We have to understand this. This is a dreadful thing and it just bugs the hell out of me, Al, if I can talk like that, because we have to get back to the basics. Economics, it's not like they're going to a movie. It faces us day in and day out. We have to shrink the government. We have to get the balance back. Otherwise, we're going to have a dreadful time and collapse is an eventual event. What do you think people should do to protect themselves? Well, first and foremost, I mean, I've been doing videos on my YouTube videos, so people are welcome to look me up on YouTube. They can put in Paul Mlad and easily find me. And I'll be doing lots of videos about what investors should do. Basically, be as self-sufficient as possible. Make sure your portfolio is tied to human need. Get more physical gold and silver over to protect yourself from currency crises. They're on the way, and people will be much safer than if they don't do these things at all, Al. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your visiting with Al and myself today on the program. Thank you, everybody. I've been speaking with Paul Mlegenovic of RavenCapitalist.com and Al Corlin of the Corlin Economic Report, or KEReport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. It's always a pleasure to speak with Ian. Ian, welcome back to the program. Oh, hi, it's just nice to be with you again. I thought you had plenty of resource in the ground, but evidently you just keep going, digging up more and more, and you have drill results pointing to a possible resource expansion for the Dubbo Zirconia project. Yes, look, it's not something we really set out to do. As you rightly pointed out, the the main deposit, the resource there, is certainly capable of producing for 80 to 100 years. But I guess the technical ideas of exactly what controls the geology, why is the mineralisation there, got the better of us. And we decided to look at this railway project or deposit, which is about four kilometres away from the main deposit, and just have a look at the geology. And interestingly, the drill results came back very interesting. Um, they about half the grade of the main deposit, but somewhere around about 40 million tonnes is the likely um, volume of the deposit. It's just another resource there down the road. I mean, I'm sure I won't be there to inaugurate the development in 100 years' time, but it just gives more backup to what we're doing in the area. Does this mean additional offtake agreements with this potential new find? Probably not. I mean, you've got to be realistic about it in the sense that besides the Dubbo Zirconia project, is really governed by our ability to get into the zirconia market. And our current output is about 8% or 10% of the downstream zirconium industry. So it's a reasonable chunk of that industry. So we can't scale up at this point in time. We may be able to in 
10 years' time, scale up. So what we've got sold already or what we've got covered under MOU basically includes all of the output at that million tonnes a year. So unless the market changes dramatically again, which would enable us then to scale up the project, there's probably nothing more we can do to expand our MOUs or expand our offtake arrangements. Now, I know you've been in discussions with Japanese companies regarding offtake in the Dubbo Zirconia project, but from what I'm reading in a recent news release, according to a white paper just published from the Information Office of the People's Republic of China, the strategic significance of the DZP has been included and highlighted specifically. Are the Chinese trying to abscond with your assets? That's a nice nice terminology, actually. Look, I think when you've got a resource like Dubbo, you always get approached, and we have certainly been approached by Chinese organisations over, over the last three or four years. And really, at this stage, you know, while we appreciate their interest, it's really not in our interest to go down with a Chinese partner at this stage. And really, Japan, Korea, Europe and North America are our, our main targets, our main markets, and that's what we have to persevere with. If we were to, say, take on a Chinese partner in some way, either into the project or into equity, into Alcane, I think some of our other potential partners would back off on us. They really, there's still a very big deep mistrust of China and what it's doing and its interest in sort of tying up these resources for the future. So at this stage, no, we really don't have any involvement with China other than we found the white paper refreshingly interesting, I suppose, are the words that, that were used internally in the sense of what they've said about the past, what they've said about the future. And I think it should give great comfort to anybody looking to develop a rare earth project that China sees a large amount of their production being designated for China internally in China. And I thought they made some interesting comments about pricing too. They felt that even current prices were lower than they should be and were not really reflecting the full cost of production. So that's an interesting comment too in the light of the other sort of media commentary we're seeing about the end of the rare earth world and all those sort of things. You know, this just demonstrates that it's a bit more complex than what sometimes some of the media prints. When do you think the potential demand for the rare earths and zirconium factor into the pricing? When can we see a steeper incline as far as prices and share prices are concerned? I think we have to get through this very difficult financial situation the world finds itself in again now. My feeling, and this is just a personal feeling, is it'll take us at least the rest of this year to sort that out. Once we get through that and there's a little bit of glimmer of hope of growth you know, worldwide again, you'll start to see the demand pick up for rare earth and, and zirconium and other metals like that. So until that happens, I think prices are going to remain very flat. The stock market's going to remain sort of generally disinterested until we see that turnaround. China should go through a government transition sometime in the next two or three months and I'm sure the incoming government in China will want to be seen to be stimulating the economy, getting back into this sort of you know, fairly substantial infrastructure program and building towns and those sort of things, which they've been doing vigorously for the last two or three years. And I think once that starts to roll again, you'll see impact on the zirconium industry and the rare earth industry as well. So we really have to get through this next six months before we sort of see ourselves a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So unlike possibly the U.S. right now, China sees a great deal of value in ramping up their infrastructure, much like we did in the 1960s. Absolutely. I think the analogies. Uh, very, very good. And if you look back, and uh, you know, I just go back and sort of read history and, and industrial history and shows what happened. There's some very interesting graphs that are published from time to time that show metal consumption by country in their stage of development. And certainly the US and Europe, you go back 
post-Second World War, and there's this amazing escalation requirement for, for metals for commodities, which then flattens out once the country becomes far more developed. And if you look at some of those graphs, you'll find that China's actually very close to the bottom. It's only at that very early stage of development. And then you stand back again and look at the population base of your 1.3 billion people in China. Their own internal demand is so strong that they really can just about sell everything that they produce back internally in the country. And the more they advance the, the social structure in China, the more those people are going to want to buy those consumer items. So I think the analogy to the US in the 50s and 60s is probably pretty valid. The only difference is I think China's got a population that's probably five times bigger than the US. And you can sort of see the impact that that will have. So at some point, you fully expect a bull market to return for rare earths and rare metals, do you not? <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not quite that brave to say bull market. What I think we'll see is a strong growth, a steady growth, rather than this rather lumpy situation we've had in the last two years. We've had this you know, sort of amazing spike in demand and prices, then it coming off quite dramatically. I think what will happen, like what happens in most other metals and most other commodities, that you get to a point where the demand stabilises, prices stabilise, and then you just, just see steady growth. So I, I don't think we'll ever see anything we, like we saw in the first half of 2011 again. I'd be very surprised if that happened. But just to see nice steady growth, 5% per annum or something like that on demand and maybe similar sort of thing on prices, I think that would probably certainly make me feel a lot more comfortable. So super steep inclines or bubbles are not necessarily our friends, are they? No, they're not. No, they distort everything and, and they do give completely wrong impressions of the nature of the industry. That's certainly what happened in the rare earth sector in the first half of 2011. What we saw was these amazing prices and that then sort of generated, it did generate a bubble. I hate using the words a bubble or a boom, but it did generate it. And unfortunately, the other side of that is when it all comes off and you find a lot of companies then seriously struggle to maintain their projects. They struggle to raise funds to, to keep them going. And we'll see a big shakeout. And again, there's no doubt over the next six to 12 months, we'll see a fairly big shakeout in the so-called rare earth industry. What kind of indicators are you getting from Japan and Korea as far as their economies and their need for industrial metals? Do you see them turning around at all? Any hints? I think it's going to continue at a fairly flat situation. I mean, I'm not so sure about Korea. I don't know as much about Korea as I know about Japan. But the Japanese see their economy being pretty flat, uh, certainly for the remainder of this year. And again, I think both countries really are at the top of that growth graph where they've they have industrialised. They basically their ramp up of consumption of metals and commodities has got to the point where they're now at a steady growth stage, and probably would be growing at a nice steady growth if it wasn't for this sort of second financial crunch we're now all going through. So I don't think you'll ever see either Japan or Korea go back to those halcyon days of the 60s and 70s, but I think you will see steady growth again once everything sorts itself out. If not for the fact that you have this massive double zirconia project, your potential $30 million a year Tomlinley Gold project would seem significant compared to most junior gold companies. Bring us up to date on what's been happening at Tomlinley. It doesn't certainly doesn't achieve the market recognition for what it is. It's sort of lost in the overall scheme of, of Alkane and the Dubbo Zirconia project, but it's still a good project. It's a mid-range production and it generates reasonable cash flows and we tended to internally recall it our know, bread and butter business. It'll provide the cash flow for the company going forward for the next 10 years and once you've got operations like that going, you can build on it because you're 
find other additional resources and your feedback in, and it'll continue to go for, for many, many years. The situation right now is that basically we've been ready to go into production for probably six months, or certainly since the end of last year. Unfortunately, the approval process in the state of New South Wales currently have been, I guess, unfortunately slow. I'm not sure what other words I can use. Just getting through all the, the processes, getting all the different departments on side seems to take a lot longer than it should do. And we don't believe that it's anything to do with the project. It's more to do with the internal resources of these departments and their general attitude to resource development. Politely, it's very frustrating at present, but we also believe that we may get approval by the end of July. End of July, assuming we can get everything else on site and moving quickly, probably puts us in production, say, August next year. And then once we're obviously in production, then the cash flow starts to come very quickly because nice thing about gold, it doesn't take a long time to ramp up to full uh, operating capacity. So then the cash flow starts to come in pretty quickly. So maybe August, September next year, we should be sort of starting to get that cash flow to $30 million a year back into the company. Well, until the Double Zirconia project is, is up and running, you're going to be known as a nice gold producer in Australia then. That's good to hear because sometimes we do get a little bit of market resistance, maybe here in Australia. They do say that, you know, don't understand what we are. Are we a gold company or a rare metal, rare earth company and, and other things that we're doing? We've also got copper gold projects. You know, really, we market ourselves as a multi-commodity company and we've done that We've done that for 20 plus years. The only difference is that we have a very tight geographic focus for that one small area in New South Wales, so we're not active in the rest of the country, we're not active say in Africa or anything like that, so it's a tight focus, but sometimes the analysts don't like you being a multi-commodity company, they find it difficult to analyse and come up with a fair value. My view, you know, it really shouldn't be an issue, it's the cash flow, the ability of the company to generate cash flow and profit that should be the overriding factor, not what commodity is, it really what it is that you're generating the cash flow, so that's our attitude and, uh, and we certainly believe that's a way forward for us. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. I look forward to visiting with you again in the near future. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Uh, thank you. It's great to be with you again. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, President and Managing Director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You know, you could become as smart as me by logging on to ellismartinreport.com That's ellismartinreport.com Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young, the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in downtown Los Angeles. Since we spoke uh, about six weeks ago, what has your experience been with relation to oil and gas investments? Unfortunately, my uh, analogy to 2008 may have been uh, more uh, prescient than I, than I expected. Uh, stocks have been down substantially, particularly in the uh, small cap uh, oil and gas space. Oil prices are down from a high of, I think, a month ago. They were at as high as $105 a barrel, and now they've been as low as $80 a barrel recently. And 
and that's had a huge impact on uh, the prices of a number of different stocks in the sector. Any indication as far as consumption, uh, supply and demand issues? Well, the last time we spoke, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, informally we talked about the Wilshire indicator, which is the, that near your office there's a Wilshire Boulevard near the 405 freeway, and the uh, traffic on Wilshire actually is somewhat correlated with the price of oil. When uh, gas prices go above about 4 or $4.50 a gallon here in L.A., people tend to stop driving as much and traffic seems to clear up. Gas is back down and it appears that traffic is worse than ever. So obviously that's just one sort of incidental indicator, but it appears that consumption is actually not hurt as badly as you'd expect based on the $25 price uh, movement in the uh, price of oil. I think that's kind of ominous, especially during the beginning of the summer driving season with uh, such a drop in oil prices. Uh, It's ominous for our economy. It's ominous for the world. I think that's fair. I think that really everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens in Europe, and I think people are waiting to see what happens with the Fed and to see if there's another sort of round of quantitative easing. I think it's going to be somewhat binary, I think, if there's quantitative easing and if uh, Europe manages to... Uh, at least uh, kick the can down the road, I think you could see equity prices go up a lot, and I think you see oil rebound and potentially go up even more than it was at uh, earlier this year. I think if you see uh, Europe fall apart and or you see uh, limited quantitative easing in the U.S. in particular, I think you could see things get even uglier, and you could see prices go down even more. And yeah, I think your, your point about there being less driving this early in the driving season, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary a little bit, but it seems to actually have picked up a little bit in the last month or so versus uh, when, when we spoke last. We've got a lot of factors affecting the price of oil and affecting the, the dollar right now. Let's say the collapse of the euro is, is, is off in the future. The eurozone breaks up. Everyone calls Greece the big trigger here. I don't know if that's necessarily true. That just boosts the dollar, and if, if the dollar is you know, worth more compared to other currencies and or gold, specifically oil, then that in itself makes it cheaper to buy well oil in the world market, doesn't it? Well, honestly, I'm just going to have to defer here. I, I'm really I'm not a macro analyst. There are brilliant hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. There are really smart people who make tons of money in currency trading and tons of money making directional bets on commodities. I prefer to just buy stocks that are incredibly cheap, that are hedged, that have good production prospects, and that are low cost. And I think if you buy stocks that are cheap relative to their fundamental value, that are growing rapidly in the that are growing economically, that over the long run you'll do well. And as long as those companies aren't over-levered and are able to fund their debt and fund their capital programs, even in a negative uh, economic scenario, I think in the long run I'll do well. And honestly, you know, I try to not pay too much attention to currency movements or macro price movements and commodities because I think in really the true long run, I think the global economy will be fine. And I think the U.S. economy will be fine. We may have uh, structural issues, but I think those issues in the long run will get resolved. I think that the challenge as an investor is to be able to find the areas in which you have an edge and where you can add value. And I think the place that I can add value is finding small, undervalued companies, buying their stocks and finding overvalued companies and shorting them and finding other sorts of interesting trades to make. And uh, in the long run, that strategy has generated fantastic returns, and I expect it to continue to generate great returns going forward. Well, let's talk about one of those companies right now that you like, that you feel is undervalued. We've spoken about them on the program before, Gale Force Petroleum. 
Gale Force, since we last spoke, has made some progress. They uh, closed a financing that they were working on and closed an additional acquisition they were working on. And uh, they're in the process of blocking up that acquisition and drilling a number of wells and recompleting a number of wells. And we could actually see in the next couple of months them double their production from the start of the year. And they've reiterated that they're on track to produce over 800 barrels a day by the end of the year. And they could potentially be producing 1,000 barrels a day by early next year or even by the end of the year. And they've also reiterated their interest in potentially spinning off their production into a royalty trust. And that's important because royalty trusts are valued at over $200,000 per flowing barrel. And so there's a possibility that around the middle of next year, you could actually see them spin off a 1,000 barrel a day royalty trust at a $250 million value versus their current value of around $25 million. It's hard to find a a producing resource company with a share price of under 50 cents that's uh, reasonably tightly held, uh, and you seem to have found one with Gale Force. I was brought in by the largest shareholder introduced to the company. It was just not well marketed. Ironically, they've done everything right from an operational perspective and from a corporate finance perspective. They haven't been out there. They haven't been very promotional. They've been very focused on doing things right operationally, and their thought was if they build it, they'll come. And, you know, I think over time that'll be true. But in the meantime, because they're not very promotional, the stock hasn't really run. And there's a great opportunity. I mean, I I own a ton of stock and I was actually looking today. I mean, I think it's extremely cheap relative to their near-term prospects. And yeah, I mean, I think the production is really exciting because I think that, especially in a low interest rate environment, given the high margins they generate in their production, there's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap of being a small producer where other small producers are also cheap. There's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap from the low valuations that small producers and small exploration companies are, are achieving to the high valuations that royalty trusts are achieving and the nature of their assets is such that they're conducive for that transition and they could potentially achieve an order of magnitude change in their valuation or more over a relatively short period of time. Would you consider increasing your position at some point? Yeah, I mean, I I was looking at it today. I didn't buy any today, but uh, I'm looking at potentially doing so in the near future. Let's talk about drilling economics for oil and gas as opposed to uh, precious metals or base metals. The numbers aren't even close, are they? Yeah, well, it's a little different. So with a gold mine, you can go and drill and spend a few million dollars drilling and end up with a billion-dollar discovery and sell it, and that's it. So with oil and gas, it's very different. You drill and you typically don't with one well create a billion dollar asset but what you do is you create cash flow and so with Gilforce relative to some other oil and gas companies their wells are actually extremely high rate of return the wells that they're drilling now I'd estimate are going to generate high double digits to low triple digit IRRs and uh, a lot of their proved undeveloped locations also have the potential to generate triple digit IRRs which is very exciting because if you look at what your return on invested capital is into the stock and you look at the company's expected ROIC, ROE, all these other sort of financial efficiency measures uh, and capital efficiency measures, you should expect that they should have a very high ROE compared to a lot of their competitors and just overall as a company. And so I think one of the the keys for Gilforce is going to be getting valued as a growth company as they transition over into being a a yield-oriented vehicle. And I think that as they show high returns and as they show high returns combined with high growth, I think it's possible that people will start to give them a really high valuation of the market. And a lot of what they're doing, the reason they're able to generate such high returns, relatively speaking, is they're coming into areas where there's already proven oil. They're drilling in relatively shallow fields. 
and they know what they have. They know the field. They come into fields where they've already been multiple wells drilled through them. They hadn't been produced because the price of oil had been a lot lower when the, the area had been drilled. They had been drilled for deep gas wells, so they know the different zones that are there. They have the opportunity to come back through these existing wells and recomplete them, and they have the opportunity to come in and drill relatively shallow oil wells that are relatively highly productive. So the combination of shallow, low cost with high productivity leads to extremely high rates of return, extremely high capital efficiency, and ultimately they may actually not need too much additional outside money. They may be able to bank finance almost all of their production growth going forward. And it's a very, very powerful model. And so again, the combination of these high returns will lead to substantial cash flow and really um, attractive financial metrics, which I think, in addition to this transition over to a royalty trust, will really help capture value and will help the share price uh, increase substantially. So there's a lot less potential risk for, let's say, the retail investor if the company doesn't have to go back into the market and dilute the stock. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they don't need to explore. So the, the exploration aspect of the business is de-risked and it's not really relevant, which is really exciting for a small company like that. They don't need to raise money to stay in business. So not only not for exploring, but to cover their overhead, they have enough cash flow to cover that. And they have enough cash flow to actually cover a large portion of their capital budget going forward. So they really don't need to go in and dilute, like you were saying. And they also don't really need, some oil companies need $100 oil or $120 oil for their project to be highly economic, they don't need that. At $70 oil, their projects are all highly economic. So you can really see, of course, as oil prices came down, Gale Force stock came down too because they haven't shown yet how great their fields are. I think as they show well results and as they show how economic their fields are, I think you'll see the stock reprice and be a little bit less sensitive to oil price movements because they're so economic. It really doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, there's more profit when the oil is at 80 like it is now than when is it at 70. And obviously, there's more profit at 90 than at 80, but they don't need it. And the fact that they don't need it means that the equity price should be less sensitive to short-term movements in the price of oil and more sensitive to people's estimates of the longer-term price of oil. And there seems to be more consensus that in three years or five years or whatever, the, the price of oil will still be 90 or 100 or 110. Then it doesn't seem like that seems to be shifting too much. It seems like there's more a question of you know what happens to the world over the next few years through uh, what happens in Europe and China. But it still seems like the long-term picture for the world is, is pretty intact. So we can almost take the price of oil out of the equation and just look at a company that's generating revenue and invest in it according to what our belief may be about that revenue. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally how I look at Gilforce. I mean, it's extremely cheap. I look at it as a growth company that's trading at a discount to its liquidation value. And it's just, it's an aberration in the market. And the simple reason it's available is that the stock is relatively illiquid and the market cap is low. And they haven't been out at a lot of conferences and haven't really marketed the story. I think that as they show production growth, as they show substantial revenue and substantially increased cash flow, I think that they'll just show up on more people's tickers. They'll show up on more people's monitors. They'll show up on financial screens that people run for growing companies. They'll show up at quant funds as they're, they're doing their screens. And I think you'll see just an increase in long-term fundamental holders that are looking for rapidly growing companies. And I think that will help to, to re-rate the, the stock. And, you know, regardless of the, your view on the price of oil, unless you think oil is going to 50 or 40, which, I mean, would involve a very bleak view 
of the world for a long term, I think you could see Yale Forest get substantially re-rated. And also, they, they have a lot of oil price hedges in place, so that even if oil went to 10, they'd have enough cash flow that they should be able to stay solvent for a period of time. So even like in the absolute bleakest, you know, Lehman Brothers times three disaster, where oil went to 35, or multiplied by three, you know, oil goes down to 10 or 12, Yale Forest should still be able to survive for a little while. And again, you're a shareholder, and they're a sponsor of this program. Yeah, and uh, I, they've paid me for consulting work in the past where I've helped them with their hedging program and other stuff. But yeah, I'm a significant shareholder, and like I said, I'm looking at potentially building my position in the public markets. Josh, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. I've been chatting with Joshua Young, manager of Young Capital Management on the road not too far from home at Morton Steakhouse in downtown Los Angeles. We've been speaking about sponsor Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. In this segment, I'll speak with Edward Kelly, the president of Inco One Resources, trading under the symbol IO on the TSX Venture Exchange. Inco One is a Canadian junior exploration company operating in northern Peru. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Pleasure to be on air with you. Now, you're doing business in Peru, which is the largest gold-producing country in South America. Why don't we know this? Well, that's a good question. I think Peru probably gets sort of overlapped with all the other metals that are being produced in South America, copper, silver, zinc, and overshadowed by Chile, probably. Why the name Inca One for your company? We decided to name the company Inca, just an Inca One, for the fact that it registers with the local people, and we wanted to be able to um, make that connection with the local people there and sort of make them feel like they're a part of the project along the way. Tell us about the Las Joaquias project, if you don't mind. Sure. Las Joaquias project, it's a project that was first prospected on, I guess, in the 70s by the Peruvian government when everything was nationalized in the country and really before modern-day exploration and mining practices took place. The country got on the map because of being a producing country. And in the 80s, the Peruvian government did a joint venture with the German government to go in and do exploration work on the Las Joaquias project. And they put in four underground tunnels did about a little bit of drilling, eight holes, 1,500 meters, and took it to what in those days would be a pre-feasibility report. Then later on, I guess in the 90s, governments changed, philosophies changed, and how to be able to move ahead as an industry in the mining space. They privatized, and this project was sold off to another Canadian junior in the mid-90s. Do you consider yourself a polymetallic company? It's definitely a region that we're working in. I would say we're more of an exploration company looking for gold and silver and copper. From what I understand, the grades of gold are fairly significant, you believe? In those days, the majority of the the drilling was done in the the late 90s, 96, 97, and 98. About 6,500 meters of drilling was done by another Canadian junior and just taking to a pre-feasibility report in the past. They came up with a historic resource based on 500 meters of strike, 20 meters width, 200 meters of depth, 6.5 million tons of ore, and an average grade of 2.09 grams per ton gold. And uh, what's interesting is it had a cutoff grade of 1.5 grams. This was done in the 90s when gold was trading about uh, $250 to $300 an ounce. Those were what the cutoff grades were being used in. Is there visible gold, silver, and copper at surface? Yes, there is some visible gold in a couple of places, and this is sort of what, I guess, led the Peruvian government to do their initial exploration work. 
have to remember the Peruvian government in the 70s and 80s when everything was nationalized, they had their pick of the litter of projects to be able to work on. And this is one of the ones they decided to do exploration work on and use their own money to further this project. And it wasn't until a Canadian junior came in in the 90s to be able to give it further exploration work and do historic resource on it. I know sometimes Peru might be considered by some to be politically sensitive. Is that the case now? Uh, I think it's got that reputation. I mean, Peru, it's an, it's an awesome country. How can you not like it when it's like number six gold producer in the world, number two silver producer in the world, and I think number three copper producer in the world, and less than 1% of the country is being exploited today. It's had some work that was done in the past, again, by when it was everything was nationalized by the Peruvian government, and the projects that you see in production today are primarily from that work that was done 20 30 years ago. So there's lots of opportunity for further exploration. Very little exploration has actually been done in the country. There's other side too where the communities can be a challenge and you have to be willing to be able to invest time and money and go through the process and sometimes it's very time consuming and you know when you've got investors at you to be able to get results and get results fast, it can be tempting to take shortcuts and Typically, when you take these shortcuts in these kinds of situations, they come back to bite you uh, down the road and in the future, and you've seen some of that with other companies that have had challenges in the past. Discuss the share structure of Inca One, Ed. This is a relatively new company, Inca One. When I first got it and restructured it and did our financing last year, we did an initial financing when we announced the acquisition of the Los Haquias project back in May of last year. We did a $2 million uh, financing, and that was to take us until we got our permits, which we're very close to getting. We've got currently 22 million shares outstanding, fully diluted, 27 million, and 43% are owned by insiders and management, including myself. When do you think the drills will get into the ground so you can further identify the resource? Well, there was a number of things that you have to do uh, in Peru, a number of steps, baseline studies, including social, economic, environmental baseline studies. You need to be able to take all that information and present it to the community, which we're doing at the end of this month. We've got a date planned to be able to do that. And uh, once you've done that, you can then apply for your drilling permit, which takes anywhere between 7 to 45 days. So we're looking at probably somewhere at the worst case scenario in August, getting our drilling permit given to us. We plan to get the drills in the ground shortly after that, and basically, I guess you could say we'll have results somewhere in Q3. Where do you see the company headed in 12 to 16 months? I would expect that we've got our uh, phase one drilling program completed, which would be to go in and firm up the historic resource to a 43101 compliance resource, and then go along the strike once, uh, I guess, it's about 2.2 kilometers long. Only 500 meters of it has been drilled on, and we want to step out and go along that remaining 1.7 kilometers long strike and firm up what we've got potentially there. Give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind, Ed. Basically, I've been involved with public companies, I guess, now for about eight years. I'm involved in, on the board of directors on four other mining companies. I've been involved in the mining space for about three years. Primarily, I guess you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur, getting involved with companies that have been, I guess, say, need restructuring, restructure them, take them to a certain level and either sell them or hand them off to more experienced management to take them to the next level. So is there an exit strategy for Inca One? Well, I don't think it's any surprise. We're not a producing company. We're a junior resource company. We're looking for value that have assets in the ground. 
that are undervalued, and then finding out the problems with them, solving those problems, unlocking shareholder value, and taking it to the next level. And there's lots of opportunity out there right now. Why should we consider Inco One over the many other junior exploration companies trading today? There's a few items you have to checklist that you have to look at. One is share structure. We've already talked about that, and we've got a very uh, an excellent share structure. Two is the project that you're working with. And uh, again, we've got a project here that got baked in success already. It's had some challenges in the past, but we believe that we've put systems in place to be able to solve those and make it a win-win for the communities, investors, and ourselves. Thirdly, I guess it comes down to experience management. We've got a number of people that are working with us from a win that we've had in the past with Norismont. Investors have uh, supported us from Norismont in the past after it was acquired by HUD Bay, as well as uh, employees that worked with Norismont. We've got, for example, our chief geologist, Tom Hendrickson. He was the chief geologist for Norismont in the past. Caddy Barragas is our general manager in Peru. She worked with Norismont in the past. So we've got a number of solid people that are working with us that have experience working in Peru for a number of years. So it's as if you had a Norsemont mining management team and they had a successful takeover a few years ago. That's exactly what it is, yeah. What is your relationship with the people in the government of Peru? Have you found your experience to be, Ed? Uh, our experience has been nothing but positive. The central government is fully committed to being able to get social issues worked through. Peru is a mining country and uh, without mining they haven't got a lot other than some agriculture going at, at this moment and tourism. So they realize that over 70% of their exports are uh, to do with minerals and they have to keep that going otherwise you know, their economy is going to stumble. We've met with local government as well and stakeholders. We've identified through our baseline studies that over 90% of our surface landholders are coffee farmers. I happen to have a past working in coffee and past experience working in the coffee industry and was able to meet with the local stakeholders, address their concerns and issues around coffee and be able to identify that they've got some challenges there. And We think we've put a great sustainability program in place where uh, on average the stakeholders are only getting about 25% of the potential yield that they should be getting. So we're working with the local coffee co-ops there to be able to go in and train up to 800 families to better farming initiatives and be able to double and triple their yields on their coffee farms as in support of them giving us for exploration rights on the surface lands. Ed, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. I appreciate your being here. Well, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell the story on Inca One. I've been speaking with Edward Kelly, the president of Inca One Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IO. Their website is IncaOne.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. That's EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice. We may be heading into a time period of continued economic stress and potential collapse. There's always a chance that for some unknown reason that I'm not aware of, nor anyone else for that matter, that we could by some miracle see an economic boom during the next year, or two, or five, or ten. I don't think so, but 
Anything is possible. Let's prepare for our own austerity. Perhaps your financial assets are diversified into a variety of venues discussed on this program previously. I will not suggest you buy or invest in anything in particular. I won't suggest that you sell any of these financial assets or liquidate them necessarily. You've heard the pitch about gold and silver bullion, and you've heard the pitch about stocks and ETFs, commodities, hard and soft. I'm not pitching any of that right now. What I'm going to suggest to you is much simpler and safer than investing in the typical things we talk about here or what you may run into by following other pundits or journalists, advisors, or pitchmen. I'm suggesting now that you stop using your credit cards for long-term debt. If you can pay down or pay off any remaining balances, do so. Use these cards if you must, but pay them off each month as you do, completely if you can as if each one was an American Express card. Using these cards for business expenses or to get travel points or purchase points is fine. But pay your balances down and pay these cards off if you can. If you can't afford to buy something otherwise, do not do it for an indefinite time period. And I don't see any change in the near future. Cash will always be cash, and the way we buy and sell what we need, cash is the tool. Only buy what you need. Convert whatever you don't need that you may own into cash and keep it. Look around. Take an inventory of what you have and have a metaphorical sale of sorts. A flea market sale. A garage sale. Get rid of everything you don't need and don't use. And forget about buying new gadgets and toys. There's no intrinsic long-term value in that. You can't eat it down the road and you can't pay bills with it. Liquidate. Protect your stash of cash. Times may get tougher. I'm an optimist, and I hope and believe that the best is always possible. But if tougher times are on the horizon, there's no harm in being ready, being prepared. Consolidate, liquidate, and prepare. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. It's Car Kicks. That's K-A-R-K-I-X dot com and on Facebook and Twitter. Now, here's the host of Car Kicks, Bob Lang. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Car Kicks. Today on Car Kicks, we have Jesse Mortensen, who is the founder of BarnFinds.com. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Bob. How did you come to building the website? What did you do before? I've actually built sites for a long time. I own a business. I, I build other websites, and, and this was just something I wanted to do for fun. So. so tell us a little background on your automotive history. I, I always have liked cars. I think probably inherited that from my dad. He, he was always into automobiles and had old cars and stuff, but when I was probably 13 or 14, I bought my grandpa's car that was actually a field find. It didn't run. It was out in my uncle's field, and I dragged it home and thought I was going to restore it. Uh, sadly, it, it went back to the junkyard. I never did get it going, but since then, I've, I've owned a lot of different cars. I've been into a lot of different kinds of cars, uh, eventually settling on European sports cars are probably my favorites, but I was in the muscle cars. What are some of the favorites that you've had in the past? Oh, my favorites. I just had an Alfa Romeo GTV that was a lot of fun. Um, had a second-gen RX-7 that was fun. That was a little little different, not as old. but The RX-7 was a very fast mid-engine car. I don't think a lot of people knew about that. Yeah, it, it was a it was a fun car. It handled really well, and I still would like to get one that, that had a good clutch in it. So. <laughs> 
How's the site organized? How can people get around it? Um, well, we divide things up into categories. So we have a barn find section, and we have race cars, project cars, and you can sort them by origin too, you know, like the American muscle cars, and German cars, all that. What are some of the most interesting cars that hey, you've seen on the site or that you've seen come through the site so far? Wow, it seems like every day we have something interesting, but I always like the, the Aston Martin barn finds. I know we had one that was a, it was a field find, and that generated a a lot of interest. There's been some user submissions that were really interesting. Like there was a Jaguar E-Type that was on a trailer out in the field and people were trying to figure out where it was and it generated a lot of interest too. So I think uh, some of the comments you get are just almost as interesting as the cars. That's right. We, we, I always read all the comments because sometimes people will add things in there that, you know, I can't know everything about a car. There's, there's people that know everything about them and they, they give us all the details. So there's a lot of interesting conversations that go on. How do people make submissions to the site? Um, they can just email me at mail at barnfinds.com. On the site, there's a page that kind of explains it. Sometimes people submit them through Facebook too. Just whatever works for them. How can fans help out the site, make it stronger, bigger, or help you in any way? I think just keep commenting and, and contributing that way, sending in submissions, and just telling their friends about it. We've we've really grown by word of mouth. I know this summer we went down to Pebble Beach to the events there, Auto Week, and we were surprised how many people already knew about the site because they told friends and it had just kind of grown on its own. It really gives people an opportunity to tap into all the hunters out there, all the pickers out there that are looking under rocks behind barns and in old garages to find these special cars. Yeah, that's right. We met a few in Pebble Beach that actually are professional barn finders, have Ferraris and things, and I won't mention any of their names, but they already knew about the site and were, were excited and said they were going to start sending in some of their finds, so we're looking forward to some of those. Well, it's a lot of fun to go to barnfinds.com and read the comments, see the cars, and uh, definitely encourage our listeners to sign up for the email and the RSS feed. That's right. They can get daily updates. As soon as we post new cars, they come on there. So some people like to do that if they're going to try to buy cars on eBay. They can get on there and try to get them first. So so if we see something in our local Craigslist or we see something in on uh, eBay, can we forward it to you? Yeah, please do. And you can get the link to barnfinds.com at carkicks.com. Car Kicks will be right back. Coming up, it's the Car Kicks Toolbox. And now it's time for a Car Kicks Car Quiz. Why was the Indianapolis Motor Speedway nicknamed the Brickyard? Was it A, the site was originally a brick factory? B, the racetrack was built by a Terre Haute brick company? C, a strip of bricks was added to the podium in 1970? Or D, the original track broke up and it was repaved with bricks. We'll have the answer in just a moment. Car Kicks Car Cap, a great ball cap for just $10. You can be a part of the ruling elite with your Car Kicks Car Cap. Stop being laughed at by your mom. Get the hat. Just 10 bucks plus tax and handling, and an agent of a semi-governmental agency will deliver it to wherever you get your U.S. mail. Get the Car Kicks Car Cap today at carkicks.com. That's K-A-R-K-I-X.com. And now the answer to your Car Kicks Car Quiz. The answer is D. The original tar and gravel track broke up after the first race in 1908, and so it was repaved with bricks. Over the years, asphalt took over, but a single strip of bricks remain at the start-finish line. That's your Car Kicks Car Quiz. 
Time for a look in the Car Kicks Toolbox. In the toolbox today is Griot's Garage. Well, not the whole garage. It wouldn't fit. I mean, you know how much stuff they have for sale. It's unbelievable. Uh, It's the Griot Garage Catalog. That's what you want in your toolbox. Griot's Garage is driven to provide customers with exceptional products and customer service, and it's all backed by a world-class guarantee. Those sound like cliches, but they really are striving for perfection. They hold the highest standards at every turn in the stuff that they make. Uh, Some companies buy car care products from mass producers, stick their label on the bottles, and call it their own. Not uh, Griot's Garage. They develop, manufacture, and bottle their car care products right here in the USA to ensure everything you put on your treasured automobile is the finest quality. And if you go to some of the best-known detail shops in the country, you'll find their products there. Uh, and the job just doesn't end with Grio when you place your order. They want you to know proper application, so they teach it too. Uh, education is a Grio garage priority. Their customer service associates are friendly. They're extensively trained. So when you call or email with a question, they'll be able to help. Now, if you go to their website, you're going to find resources, uh, blogs, videos, articles, tech sheets, all at your fingertips just to help you use their products the proper way. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, they guarantee it. They know how stressful it is to have tools and products fail. They've taken to heart the words of Sir Henry Royce and created the finest car care line available. They have strict standards, extensive knowledge, and they cover everything they sell with a 100% satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime guarantee against defects. So you can rest easy, not worry, when you order something from Griot's Garage. And the list of products in Griot's Garage is almost endless. It's everything you could possibly need to have the most well-appointed, well-stocked, well-supplied garage around. So get your hands on the ultimate handbook for the automotive enthusiast. Just go to their website, fill out the form, and get the most recent handbook, the Griot's Garage Catalog. You know it's in the Car Kicks Toolbox. Don't forget to tell our sponsors that you heard about them on Car Kicks. That's how we keep the show rolling. Well, I hope you had a good time today on Car Kicks. Heidi, is there anything else we can do right now? That's all for now. See you right here next time with more Car Kicks. Join us on the web at carkicks.com. That's K-A-R-K-I-X.com. And on Facebook and Twitter. Hasta la vista, baby. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.